We're looking at Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62, and it'll help you if you've got your Bible open uh, at that point to follow as we go through. Uh, the three men who are attracted to following Jesus, who inquire uh, about following Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem. Uh, I wonder if you know that kind of feeling, that feeling of watching a group of people who are uh, embarking on a journey and your heart goes out to them, you're drawn to uh, what they're doing. Uh, you'll have your own thoughts as to what kind of journey that might be. I'm thinking of, uh, for example, a group that's walking along the West Highland Way. Uh, you see them at various points along the way emerging from the, the, the tracks and paths that make up the way, the drove roads and so on, coming out at a place like uh, Tyndrum or Crianlare. And you catch something of the excitement and the, the camaraderie that the group are experiencing, the, the planning for the next stage, uh, the, the wild camping perhaps, the, the fry up at the end of a long day's walking, the, the fact that you're challenging yourself, there's something to measure yourself against. I've often been drawn to the thought of doing the West Highland Way. Uh, but the time's never been right. Or the weather's been too bad. And it's just never happened. And Jesus is on a journey. He's on the road. Uh, he's on the road to Jerusalem. And the sight of Jesus travelling and the group who are travelling with him draws out the attraction of three men who want to join this happy band. Verse 51 is one of the marker verses in Luke's Gospel. Uh, it tells us that we're in a new phase. Uh, it tells us that as a time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And the coming chapters are about a journey, about a journey to Jerusalem. Uh, he is going to receive glory when he's taken up into heaven. But before then, there will be the agonizing prayer in Gethsemane, the betrayal by Judas, the mocking of the soldiers, the trial by spineless Pilate, the darkness and the grave. And on Sunday morning, the light and the life of the resurrection and its freedom and hope. But first of all, the cross, and this is what is immediately lying ahead, and the reality of that cross has not yet dawned on the disciples. And we've seen that powerfully demonstrated by the fact that they can degenerate at times into discussions about who's greatest. It's the very last thing that should be on their mind. They haven't grasped what uh, being a follower of Jesus is, that it is about taking up a, a different kind of cross in your own life, a denying of the self-instinct. And just like the disciples didn't really get it at this stage, so we have uh, three onlookers, three people that the group who are travelling with Jesus on the road encounter. Three people who are thinking to themselves, I'd like to be with them. But they haven't grasped the reality of what it is to be 
a Christian. And as Luke presents it here, we see themselves having to choose between, on the one side, comfort, custom, convention, and on the other side, Christ. And it's a choice that always confronts us. Now, the section is clearly telling us about the cost of following Jesus, but also implied in the, the, the words that Jesus uses uh, is a description of what the Christian life is like. Uh, so this is very helpful for us. Uh, and we also see that there's an implied supply for us of the, the energy to commit to this discipleship, this following of Jesus on the road that he travels. So here's a, a great place for anyone to come who is uh, at a crossroads in life, perhaps, who is thinking about uh, joining the Christian faith, following the Lord Jesus, throwing their lot in with him. Because here, in this short passage, uh, we're told what the Christian life is like, uh, what's required of us, and where we find the resources to make that commitment. So, uh, we're going to look at what the journey commits us to. Uh, we're going to see the, the enemies to that kind of commitment, secondly, and then thirdly, uh, where we find the power to commit to following Jesus. What does the Christian journey commit us to? Well, three different people approach Jesus, and in his responses to them, uh, there are indicators, there are signposts, if you like, to three different aspects of what the Christian life is all about. First of all, being a Christian means following Jesus. Following Jesus. The command to the second man is simply, follow me. The first man also, quite rightly, uh, promises to follow Jesus uh, wherever he goes. Uh, he has at least discerned that that is what uh, being a Christian, being a follower of Christ will be like. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. That's it in a nutshell. It, that's it in its most basic sense. You have to learn to be a follower. There's a sense in which uh, if you're to be a Christian, you have to stop being a leader in the wrong sense. We all like to lead our lives. We all like to determine the direction of travel of our lives. We all love playing the song, I did it my way. We all live out the song in our lives. We think that we have a right to choose, that we have a right to things working out for us. When things don't work out for us, we're all too ready to cry foul. We are, we think, the captain of our own ship, the maker of our own destiny. And to become a Christian is to realize that that can't be the case, that we've got to leave behind our own me-centered outlook on the world. This idea that I am the center of the universe and that my interests must come first. And this is the challenge. This is, this is where we, we find that the, the Christian challenge uh, reverses all of our instincts to be my own leader. 
I have to follow Jesus. Follow him as he tells me that I can never reach acceptance with God by my own merits, by my own goodness, but I have to simply acknowledge that I've blown it, that I've gone my own way, that I am a sinner in the deepest sense of being a rebel against God and his commandments, that I need to find a goodness that's not my own, that I must receive it, that I must follow the way that Jesus has mapped out for me. I must believe that Jesus is my substitute, that his death has settled the problem of my sin. And from that point of laying down the right to determine my own path, I then follow Jesus every day of my life. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. That's the first thing. To be a Christian is also to proclaim Jesus. In verse 60, Jesus tells the second inquirer uh, that traveling with him, with Jesus, means proclaiming the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, very simply, it means to, to be willing to acknowledge whose side we're on. So you're not to think about this in terms of you need to get a soapbox to stand on and at the corner you're going to shout with a megaphone to all who go by. Uh, That's not what's meant here necessarily. It's simply being willing to say, maybe to your best friend, to those in your family, I am following Jesus. I've put my trust in Jesus. Now, is that such a big deal, really? Uh, When we come to Jesus, what does he give us? He gives us new life. He gives us hope of heaven. Uh, He gives us meaning to our lives, purpose. He places us into a family. It's the best news that anyone could ever have. It's turning our life all around from being bad and dark and gloomy to be hopeful, bright and joyful. Who would not want to share that change? And that's what's meant by proclaiming the kingdom. Being willing to point others to the one that they need more than anything else. If you love your friend, tell them about Jesus. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Thirdly, being on this road means service. Service is the way Jesus described it when he's talking to the third man. He said, if you're in two minds about following me, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Being a follower of Jesus means a big practical change in the way you live. means that... We, we follow him in his attitude to service. Jesus said some wonderful things about uh, serving others. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, I am among you as one who serves. He gave an enacted demonstration of what we're to do when at the Last Supper he took the servant's part and washed the feet of the disciples. He did the humiliating, the humble, the menial task for other people. He calls us to serve the kingdom of God. And so when we're at the threshold, we ask ourselves, Why am I attracted to Jesus? Is it because I want to make my life uh, more happy? Is it because I think I've got some void inside and I want to get it filled up? 
Jesus has come to our lives claiming us as his followers, giving us a work to do. And in his service, we'll find perfect freedom. John F. Kennedy famously said to the American people, uh, ask not what America can do for you, ask what you can do for America. Well, we could adjust that. Ask not what the kingdom of God can do for you, but ask what you can do for the kingdom of God. I am among you as one who serves. He's our servant king. His pattern is one of service. And being a Christian means following Jesus, proclaiming him, and serving in the kingdom. What then are the things that prevent people making this kind of commitment? The three men illustrate different ways in which we can be attracted to being a Christian, but there are negative energies. There are forces in life which repel us from making the final commitment. The first of these is the love of our own comfort. A man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Wow. That, that's the kind of offer that any leader in the church would gladly hear. Here's someone and they're writing, as it were, a blank check to the service of the Savior. I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus, who knew the thoughts of men, realizes that this is something which is given in the spur of the moment, in the heat of the emotion, it has not been adequately thought through. And Jesus seems to detect behind the man's superficial offer a reluctance to leave his home comforts. And so he points up what the, the cost of being a disciple will be. Foxes of holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's true of the Son of Man. The implication is it will be true of those who follow him. If Jesus has had to, to give up his comforts, then we certainly don't sign up in order to have uh, our, our, our path strewn with rose petals. We are signing up for the same uh, conditions that Jesus himself uh, lived out his life. Jesus wants us to be clear about the costliness of following him. There's a race to be run. There's a battle to be fought. There are hardships and trials along the way. So there are times when if you follow Jesus, though you will probably not be made homeless, you'll experience things that challenge you, that push you out of your comfort zone. Things that are difficult. Oppositions of different kind. Think about it at its most basic level. There will be times on a Sunday morning when the duvet is very attractive or whether, when you want to simply lie in and watch the TV and the call of the road is to be with the people of God gather to worship. The gospel pushes us out of our comfort zone and makes us willing to embrace discomfort for the sake of Jesus. Isn't it wonderful how honest uh, the Lord Jesus is? That he doesn't just uh, take on people uh, 
who are, who are willing to, to make this kind of offer, but he spells out the, the kind of hardship that we may well meet along the way. I wonder how many people sign up, uh, for example, for the army uh, because they're attracted by persuasive advertising. You know, uh, at one level, it can sound very glamorous you know, to go to lots of foreign countries uh, to have a good time, adventure, early retirement. And yet, the reality can be very different. There can be long periods of grueling training, the tedium of the barracks, and then Afghanistan. Jesus makes it very clear that we have to choose between him and a life in which we insist on our own comforts. We're not told what the man did. He very likely turned away from Jesus. But, you know, there's another, um, another example of how we can not just give a vague promise to follow Christ, but we can make a specific uh, commitment to do something which sounds very grand when we're challenged in this kind of way. Uh, you know, we can hear the challenge of the gospel and say, that's it. I'm going to Greenland. I'm going to be a, a missionary to the Eskimos. Or I'm going to be homeless if necessary for Jesus. I will cash in my home. I'll give it over to the church. And in a sudden response like that, well, we can become like that first man who didn't think through the implications of what he was saying and whose idealism, uh, whose commitment simply evaporated in words. How do we ensure our commitment to Jesus doesn't evaporate in an emotional response? Well, it can be helpful to think of wholehearted commitment in, in this way. Think about it as offering our life as though our life was you know, £10,000. Someone has said that uh, to, to be committed to Christ means uh, handing over that £10,000 and saying, this is my life, committed to you. But in actual fact, a better way of thinking about it is to think of that £10,000 as being taken into the bank and cashed into £1.50 pieces. And giving our wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ means a life, often, of spending for Jesus those pounds, two pounds, five pounds, fifty pences, in some very humdrum, very seemingly insignificant acts of service, of self-denial, of commitment. Often unheroic, often unsung, but reflecting the fact that our life has been given over to Jesus. And so, wholehearted commitment and the giving up of our comforts can translate into a visit to a Christian friend who is feeling down, a readiness to, to leave the service and to help in the Sunday school, a commitment to find work locally in order to put witness for Christ first on the agenda. These kind of things are evidence of a life which is willing to forgo personal comfort for the sake of Christ in ways which are often very domestic, very low-key, but are the reality of daily 
Christian life. The second man illustrates how easy it is to make a good thing like duty to family a reason for not putting Christ first in our lives. The second man is called by Jesus. Uh, in response, he asks to first bury his father. This is quite a, a difficult one, isn't it? Quite shocking to us. It may well be that the man's father had actually died. And Jesus' instruction to the man to leave uh, the funeral business to others is designed to shock him into seeing that urgent as the death of one's father and the funeral arrangements surrounding it may be, there is something which is even more urgent than that. And that is very well uh, what is meant here. On the other hand, some think that the man wasn't saying that he had a funeral to prepare for, but that he had an elderly father to look after. (coughs) And he's asking to stay at home until the father had died and his obligations to his father were met. And when Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, you come and proclaim the kingdom of God, he's saying, let people who are not spiritually alive do these duties. You are called to be spiritually alive and to do something that is vital. All people will die, but unless they hear the good news, they will not receive eternal life. You preach the kingdom of God. Now let's be absolutely clear. Let's not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that we do not have a duty of care to our parents. That, that, that shouldn't need to be said because the fifth commandment makes it clear that we are to honour our father and mother, right? Uh, that includes caring for them when they are elderly. Uh, nor, uh, in the other uh, generation, nor are we to, to serve God in a way that damages our children. We're to care for our children. We're to, to nurture and nourish our children. But what Jesus is challenging us, is challenging our thinking in respect of the possibility of making even our sense of duty an idol so that that it takes priority over Jesus. You know, a good thing can come in the way of Jesus. If Jesus is not one, number one in your life, then something else is. And by virtue of being number one in your life, it's become an idol, (coughs) even something like duty to those near and dear to you. So if your duties are so important to you that they are the reason why you continually put off being committed to Christ or serving him as you should, then you need to see that that's a real problem. You need to see that there's nothing more important for you than that you follow Jesus and that there's nothing more for the good of other people than that they hear that Jesus is the saviour that they need. That is their greatest good. Now, the third man shows that another enemy to commitment can be our family relationships. Uh, Notice his offer of allegiance. It's very conditional. I will follow you, but... 
and the word but, of course, is decisive. But let me first, and again, it's an important word there, first go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replies, again, it's, it's a shocking reply, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, it's shocking, isn't it? It's meant to be shocking. None of us would think there was anything particularly wrong about going and saying goodbye to the folks at home. There's another reason why this is shocking, uh, in that it, it contrasts with another story in the Old Testament. Uh, there's an echo here of the story of uh, Elisha's succession to Elijah. Uh, in the Old Testament, Elijah is one of the, the great prophets raised up at a time when there was a lot of idolatry in Israel. Elijah's coming to the end of his time. He will be taken up to heaven. His successor is to be Elisha. Elijah comes along and throws his cloak over Elisha, and it's a sign that he's to, to follow him as his successor. At the time, actually, Elisha is plowing. He's plowing with a yoke of oxen. Uh, Elisha says to Elijah, first, let me go home and say my farewells to my parents. And Elijah says, okay, go home. And he goes home and he says goodbye to his parents. And then he, he kills the yoke of oxen, makes a fire with the plough, and uh, gives meat to those who are with him. In other words, he's saying, that's the end of this line of work. I have not burnt my boats, but I've burnt my oxen. I'm following the way of the Lord. But the, the interesting contrast is that Elijah allowed Elisha to go back and say farewell to his parents. Jesus says to this man, I am more important than Elijah. My service is more urgent. Come follow me. Jesus again, I think, is detecting in this man uh, a fondness for the home that is a rival to his commitment to the Saviour. It's more than just a desire to go back and say, cheerio. There's something in his love for the family that is making him swither, making him look longingly on a set of relationships that he really will have to leave behind if he's to do what Jesus says. Now again, it's a good thing to love your family. I mean, it's like motherhood and apple pie. Who can say anything bad about your family? But even the family can be an idol. If your family is so important to you, that thought of what they might say to you if you became a Christian is putting you off. Or thought that you might be less needed or loved by the family if you are to follow Jesus. Is putting you off. Can you see that that is an idol? It's coming in the place of Jesus. Now, the question then is, where does the energy come from? Where does the power come from to commit to Jesus? Because these are, are powerful forces going on in our lives, aren't they? The, who of us doesn't like uh, to, to have a, a comfortable life? To, to be able to, to, to draw up the, the drawbridge at the end of the day and to have our own privacy and not to, not to feel that we're at the beck and call of someone else and that we might have to, to leave our, our comfortable place and serve 
others. Who of us doesn't find uh, the obligations of family and our love of family an important, powerful thing, which can at times rival our love for Christ? Where does, where does the contrary attraction come from? Well, it comes from Jesus himself, doesn't it? And first of all, we have to see our sin in its blackest colours so that we see the cross in all its beauty. You know when the jewellers are displaying precious stones uh, in order to to show the luster of the the diamond, uh, they'll set it against a dark background. Well, unless we see the darkness of our sin, our need of forgiveness, unless we've really got to grips, unless we've grappled with how how terrible it is to live as though God did not exist, which is what we do before we come to him. Unless we see how awful that is, we'll never really appreciate the love that God has shown us in giving his son for us. But when we do, we're like the man in the parable that Jesus told, who the merchant who bought the pearl of great price, and in order to get it, he sold everything. And he didn't grudge the purchase, but with joy he went and sold everything. He bought the pearl of great price and he went on his way rejoicing. And that is what it is to know Jesus as our Savior. It's to discover that we have one who is more beautiful, more captivating, more wonderful, more fulfilling, more committed to me than I can ever be to him. And that relativizes every other Beauty, duty, compulsion, desire in the world. Jesus becomes our heart's desire. What will get rid of that that energy which clings to, to self within? Nothing but a new energy, a new love, a new affection. Nothing but Jesus himself. And that is why... In many ways, coming to Jesus is to be wooed by Jesus. To be won by Jesus, captivated by his love. And to go on in the Christian life is to learn more about Jesus so that we are continually putting him first because our heart is his. He has won us. We are his own. So we're not on an easy road to heaven. But friends, isn't it a happy road? (laughs) With Jesus, it's the only road that's worth traveling. It's the road that leads to heaven. And our great treasure is not what Jesus gives us, though he gives us much. He's promised us family when we lose a natural family. He's promised us an inheritance in heaven. But more than anything he gives, he gives himself. So, are you on that crossroad? Are you watching on? What does the word say to you this morning? It says what Moses said to his father-in-law, Jethro, when he had left Egypt and was about to travel to the promised land, and he met up with him. 
Come with us. We'll do you good. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. What a great promise. It's a gospel promise. If you throw your lot in with Jesus and his people, he'll do you good. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the gospel to transform lives. We thank you that Jesus is the pearl of great price. We thank you that whatever it is that would pull us away from him and from this gospel road, Jesus is greater, more precious by far. We thank you for the power of the cross, for the love that it represents, the draw that it exerts on our hearts as we make our way to heaven. Thank you for your word to us this morning. Bless it, Lord, we pray to each heart. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I was thinking there of the, the power of the cross, the, the cross that demonstrates the love of Jesus for us. We're going to sing about that now. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the rock. We stand forgiven at the cross.
now may grace, mercy and peace from Father, Son and Holy Spirit rest upon you now and forevermore.